Hello and welcome to this podcast. Uh, I'm Doug Luciani, President of the Traverse City Area Chamber of Commerce, and today we're going to be talking with representatives of the four different electric utilities that serve the greater Traverse City area. And we're talking specifically about uh, renewable energy and uh, from, the, from the provider's perspective. So we're trying to educate and inform about renewable energy, but, but it will be from uh, one perspective, and that's from the uh, utilities that are uh, charged with providing us with our electricity. I've uh, introduced myself, uh, but I'd like to go ahead and have our participants introduce themselves as well, and we'll start with Tony Anderson. Tony Anderson with Cherryland Electric Cooperative. I've been with Cherryland for the past 11 years and in the utility business uh, 31 years now. Tim Aarons with Traverse City Light and Power, and I've been with the City of Traverse City for 25 years and the Director of Light and Power for a little over two. I'm Steve Rawlings. I'm with uh, DTE Energy, and uh, I've been with the company for over 15 years and in the energy business uh, since 1993. Uh, I represent DTE Energy, as I said, and we're one of the state's largest uh, electric and natural gas utilities, and uh, so I'm happy to share my thoughts and opinions about renewable energy. Uh, Doug DeYoung with Consumers Energy. I've been with the company for nine months, but uh, I've been involved in policy and uh, government relations in the state for 20-some years um, and uh, working for Consumers now, the largest uh, utility in the state. So uh, here to share with you our plans and where we're going with renewable energy. Thanks, guys. And, you know, we uh, at the Chamber have been looking at the issue of energy for a long time. In 2008, the Chamber uh, convened a community task force and came up with a, a strategic approach to energy. And, and the focus for us at the time was on conservation. And it, there was an acknowledgement that at some point, the traditional fuels that we use to provide energy will begin to be depleted and um, that we needed to start looking at other forms of, of energy production and, and renewables was was a big topic then. It's become a bigger topic with some of the actions of the EPA and um, the decision of this administration that we need to close a lot of coal plants in the United States and how difficult it is to, to build uh, nuclear plants and other things. So let's get to probably the biggest question that people have when uh, they talk about this is what really constitutes renewable energy? And Tony, why don't we start with you? Well, obviously, wind and solar are the two that people talk about the most. I think the forgotten form of renewable energy is hydro. Some states have said hydro running water is not renewable, but I, I would contend that it is. And, and hydro is actually the, the most, the best renewable as far as 24-7 electricity. Because as we'll get into later, I'm sure we have some issues with no sun, no wind at times. But... Those are the big three for me. Uh, biomass, obviously, is renewable as well, but that has some issues also. I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, yeah, I think Tony's pretty much hit on that as far as the renewables and, um, you know, just the mix. Uh, I think what we're looking for as a utility is uh, just a mix of different renewables that make sense based on the price of those renewables into our portfolio. Well, you know, when you talk about hydro, I just can't help but ask, you know, uh, Traverse City Light and Power had a number of dams that were built 
a long time ago right. uh, for the purpose of providing hydroelectric uh, power. Um, what went into the consideration of uh, either revamping those dams that, for hydropower versus removing them? Well, it was, uh, it was basically economic. Uh, with uh, the relicensing of the dams, it required um, improvements to the dams and additional spillways uh, would have cost millions of dollars. And uh, the flow of the river uh, was determined it was not economic for the investment. Um, not that they didn't support um, the board and the, and the administration at the time didn't support renewable energy from hydroelectric. Uh, it just did not feel that the economics were there to support, uh, you know, spending that kind of money on it. Uh, DTE Energy actually took a look at those before they were decommissioned, and uh, we ran the traps on it. And we came up with the same findings. Uh, the the economics just were not there. While the physical properties of renewable energy existed, um, the requirements from the spillways to, uh, you know, the returns on on uh, your invested capital just didn't make sense to invest in renewable energy in those cases. Plus, as a region, I think we've benefited from having some, you know, recovery of blue ribbon trout streams and other things that I think are economic drivers here in northern Michigan. Well, Steve, while we're, while we're on you, uh, DTE is a large <coughs> provider of natural gas in the state of Michigan and uh, through its uh, affiliates and uh, natural gas is kind of the darling right now in terms of clean energy for uh, large baseload power. So what is the difference between renewable and clean energy? Because uh, I certainly wouldn't consider natural gas a renewable source of energy and yet it's very popular uh, choice. Sure. Well, there's two there's two points there. I think you've uh, you touched upon clean energy versus renewable energy. Um, to me and to to our constituency, clean energy could include nuclear energy. So clean energy, emission free energy. Um, natural gas is much cleaner than uh, coal. Its uh, its emissions are you know significantly less in terms of CO2 and other things um, from com combustion, but uh, it, is, it is considered a darling, but I, I would say it's like the last man standing because, uh, you know, we've been trying to license another nuclear plant now since my entire career, uh, and we're not really anywhere closer to doing that, so we're not building any nuclear as a state. Uh, we've certainly seen failed attempts to build uh, new uh, 21st century coal plants, so that's not happening. Um, we are investing in renewable as a state, but again, when you talk about base load power, you know, there's really only one thing left, and that's natural gas. So um, I think it's darling by default. Um, fortunately, here in Michigan, we're a very liquid state in terms of a market availability of natural gas. We are a hub of the upper Midwest. Uh, Michigan is blessed with the largest natural gas storage formations in the continental United States. And we are also a very, um, as I mentioned, liquid hub for the East Coast market. So we have a lot of natural gas in our state and available to us as um, you know, residents and consumers. But we do have some transmission issues with that gas. I mean, very much. We have, we have a peaking plant that we weren't able to use for 30 days this winter because of the transmission. That we're getting off the renewable subject, but 
Well, but they they go together. And, yeah, and, they do. And yeah, so so you get to natural gas, which is last man standing and it is clean, but uh, some issues with natural gas. There's the transmission issue uh, for it. There's the fact that yeah, natural gas is is has become much more um, uh, widely adapted for uses beyond what it was before for heating homes and things like that. It's now running fleets of, of vehicles, it's it's running power plants and other things. And so to get it, there are some controversial methods of, of extracting natural gas. And so it comes with fracking and, and some of the issues that go with that. Um, so, so it has its issues. Uh, the utilities are, are being uh, really driven by policy <laughs> to invest in wind and solar. And, and uh, Doug, what are some of the ways that consumers is addressing that? Those, that mandate? Well, our portfolio is obviously expanding. And so our portfolio of energy uh, um, production is expanding. Uh, we are, we have finished our Lake Winds project, which is down in the Ludington area. It's about a hundred megawatt facility. Um, we are currently in construction in Tuscola County, which is in the thumb of another 105 megawatt uh, wind facility which will be complete by the end of this year. Uh, matter of fact, if you're coming up 127 uh, from now through uh, mid to late September, you'll probably see those blades on the highway. Um, those are going over to the thumb area for, uh, for production of that facility. Um, so that will put us well over the 10% renewable requirement that the state um, policy has put on us. Uh, we do expect in 2015 further discussion on state policy on renewables and um, there will be a lot of open debate on where uh, renewable expansion uh, may occur and how that policy will occur. Will it allow hydro from Canada or will it allow outside sources as part of that policy? So we're watching that closely. Well that's a great point to bring up and I'd be interested in uh, any of your perspectives on, on whether we should be producing uh, renewable energy or whether it's more efficient to just import renewable energy from places where it, where it's more abundant? Well, uh, I think both. The answer is both. I, I think uh, from DTE's perspective, um, you know, we're seeing market rates, development rates of renewable, specifically wind, that are competitive. Um, our big key points are we need to have uh, remained flexibility in our regulatory construct the constructs need to be stable so that we can acquire and attract the capital investment required for increased renewable energy. But then we also need to be diverse. Uh, you know, we can't just say just Michigan renewable energy. If, uh, you know, if there's contracts in Iowa for offtake of wind, we need to be able to benefit from that and count it towards our renewable portfolio standard. All of that said, back again to the flexibility. Um, you know, the other day I was driving back from Lansing. Uh, it was very hot. Uh, it was in the mid of the day, and I was driving on um, uh, 127 past the Gratiot County Farm, one of the biggest utility wind scale right. parks we have in Michigan. Uh, and, and, you know, that, D, that represents a significant amount of investment from DTE Energy and our shareholders. And um, they were the turbines were not turning. And if you want to talk about a sick feeling, 
Uh, it's, uh, you know, driving by them and knowing that the dollars you've invested there are not working for you and not providing energy that your customers are demanding at that very instant. It's a very, very uncomfortable feeling. And I think people need to understand that. Wind is good, renew renewable is good, but it, it is not the silver bullet. And, and if we uh, legislate around that being a silver bullet, we're gonna be in problems as a state. Yeah, I, I think it's about a 10 to one component is what we consider. It takes 10 megawatts of wind to replace one megawatt of gas or coal. And that's a vast amount of territory. So if, we, if we're really gonna get serious about it, we need the ability to buy it out of state. <coughs> And personally, I think the current in-state requirement is unconstitutional. I think somebody, a utility, could go in and challenge that requirement and win. Why haven't they? It's not worth the fight at this point because we are getting some decent prices right now. And I think we're getting decent prices right now, competitive prices, because the production tax credits are about to go away. So there's a lot of people putting iron in the ground so they can capture those tax credits. Those, those tax credits bring those wind developers over two cents a kilowatt hour. That's driving our price down. What will the price of wind be, solar be, when uh, those tax credits go away? If they do indeed go away is the question. But now is the opportunity to capture some good prices. And, I, and for Traverse City Light and Power, when you're a power purchaser like our utility, we do not uh, generate our own power to the degree that we have in the past when we had the power plant on the bay. So we're a power purchaser, and in looking at um, any generation um, power purchase uh, opportunities, I think it would be important, the most important thing to me is to bring something to our board that can be approved that will not negatively impact rates. Um, you know, renewable energy is great. Um, if we were able to cross state lines and invest in solar in New Mexico, um, invest in wind um, where, where wind farms are more predominant and more economical um, and the prices are better. Why? I, I think it's only important. I understand why they had the Michigan requirement at the time. My understanding of it, um, you know, economically the state was not doing well. It was an investment in Michigan and it was about Michigan jobs and, and Michigan manufacturing. Uh, we've rebounded, I believe. Um, it did do what was intended um, by spurring uh, jobs in Michigan. But now I think they need to um, take a look, and if they want to go beyond that 10%, they're going to have to allow utilities to invest where the economics makes the most sense. Yeah, I would jump on that and argue that affordable electricity is going to create far more jobs than in-state renewables. You know, manufacturing will expand, but they have to have affordable prices for their purchases of energy as well. The other thing I think we're seeing in the wind development in Michigan is uh, a tremendous obstacle with local zoning. Uh, you know, we have 83 counties, 1,242 townships, each with their own opinion on what a wind turbine right. utility scale should look like. And the result is some of the most premium sites uh, for wind energy w with the best payback, the best use of the resource are unavailable to the utilities and to our state. So we may need to look at that, I think, as a state and address, you know, perhaps statewide zoning or perhaps agree as a state, 
yes here, not here. Um, certainly there are some pristine places in Michigan where certainly do not want to impact the view shed or anything else. But that said, uh, we do need to carve out areas that are generally acceptable for development. And, uh, you know, if we can attract the invested capital, let's develop it uh, and not be mired in debate and dialogue about yes, no, not so here. So the state is setting uh, the renewable standard, but are there any existing state uh, guidelines for where Let's say where windmills can be placed, or is no, that completely it's, local? That's completely local. And I don't totally disagree with Steve, but I'd take the contrarian view just a little bit and, and ask what's the argument for a township in Benzie County to say you want to give all the control to a term limited legislature where all the votes really come from downstate? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, no, I totally, hang in Benzie County out I, to dry or Grand Traverse County. Even. I totally uh, agree because, you know, you take a, a, a situation like Leelanau County exactly. um, or the old Mission Peninsula here in our region. Certainly um, there are areas where it just, while it would be perfect economic sense and perfect um, placement for utility turbines, we probably don't want that as a as a region there or uh, as a state that's that's right and um so having someone else who can't appreciate those places that are one of a kind unique and pristine uh, making decisions about you know local placement that's a problem but i think we could even overlay that in a larger sense um you know grand vision energy committee did a study uh actually a survey where they asked, uh, you know, what forms of generation would you like to see uh, used as a state? And of course, everything fell where we, you know, we all imagine where it would fall. Um, the interesting thing is nobody wanted it in their township yep. or their county. They wanted it somewhere yeah, else. Somewhere. So yep, it didn't matter if it was coal, nuclear, mm -hmm. renewable, solar, biomass. They, they wanted, obviously, the more responsible forms uh, they wanted it in a very economic fashion, but they didn't want it in their backyard. So, uh, and we've seen that here in Traverse City. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure, but I think you tried to build a biomass plant, or was it? Mm -hmm. I'm not. It was just talk. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Just well, a small wood <laughs> long ago. But that yeah. is a challenge. It wouldn't have produced as much smoke as a state park. But. We, yeah. <laughs> we have found success working locally in developing our two farms. They come with challenges, but they also come with opportunities. So we, you know, we have finished our Lake Winds farm, and you know, we'll have our Crosswinds farm done by the end of this year. So we worked with the local uh, you know, municipal governments and township governments to be able to get those farms up and running. Um, so there is that ability to work locally, um, and the ability to get some things done. There are. There are, you know, spots where it will always be a challenge, and you know, I think that comes with education, discussion, and really sitting down and making sure that that is the best place. How does a township uh, gain when the wind turbines come to their township? Property taxes go up. Do, do you well, pay sure. them a fee? I, or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's, you know, there's property tax value on on the farm itself. There's um, obviously the individual landowner that we are using. To put the farm on does get um, some compensation for that as well. 
So there's compensation in the community for the individual landowner. A lot of these landowners are farmers. Uh, we develop these so they can actually farm right up to within 15 feet of them and, and work around and continue to work around so they continue to uh, their main livelihood as a farmer, but they also uh, give some compensation on the, uh, for having those on site as well. Well, um, <clears throat> you, know, you, you brought up the biomass. Uh, Michigan has 4 million acres of public land, and most of that is in state and national forests. Uh, we have a lot of potential biomass. Uh, is, is the biomass discussion for energy really, have we moved past that as a state, or does that still have potential? Well, um, you know, when DTE looks at a biomass plant, um, you know, our studies show that the fuel source has to come from within a 60 to 80 mile radius of the plant. So you have to do the economics based on what fuel sources are available in that community. Um, the fuel sources for us need to be renewable in that, you know, it was something that was planted, um, you know, for pulp wood and or some other source of lumber. Um, or it could be, um, you know, you know, in other areas of the of the United States, they're using switchgrass or other uh, cellulose type fuel sources. Michigan is primarily woody debris, um, so I think that's an important thing to to think about. It's uh, it can be a good a good thing. It can be an economic driver. It is renewable. There is a, a taxing benefit on roads and traffic. Um, you know, you can you can drive down to Cadillac and uh, and watch on 115 the uh, you know the wood pulp trucks come in to feed that plant. Uh, and it and it is a you know it's a 24/7 operation. But at the same time, it is renewable, and the the locations where those trees and and woody debris are coming from are you know replanted and regrown. So uh, in you know another seven years, they can harvest it again. So it, it is a it is a good thing, but there are you know components that you need to think about. From a climate change perspective, though, does is there any more benefit to burning woody pulp than there is to burning coal? That's a great question. Yeah, I, uh, I won't capture the airtime, but you know these trees are capturing carbon dioxide. Uh, so some would say, you know, you're re-releasing what's already been captured. Others would look at it inversely, saying, hey, we're using a source that has already captured carbon dioxide. Um, so you can look at it from both perspectives. But I think again, and you talk to Doug, the key is flexibility. We need all of the above. If you think about what our population is going to be and what our state's going to require in terms of energy demand uh, in the future, we need everything. So, so we, we do have several biomass operations across the state, both at Consumers Energy and CMS Energy, our partner. Um, we also are, you know, that's green. We see it as a green energy use those to reinvest in R&D. Um, we're working with Michigan State University right now on an anaerobic digester um, and, and looking at farm uh, byproduct and, and how can we utilize that. And so we're working to facilitate uh, on, on Michigan or near Michigan State's campus that type of um, 
process and see where that leads us. And I think Steve hit it right on. We have to be flexible. We have to look at all of the opportunities that, that we have within the state and where can we best utilize those opportunities to create energy and provide to our customers um, the energy they need when they need it. And that's really part of you know our investment back into the state and all of these different types of resources. And, and this, you know, when we were uh, going through the process of trying to site a biomass plant within the city limits, uh, you know, we had some experts that came up. We had a public forum where uh, forestry, state forestry officials encouraged uh, biomass as, as, an, as an option for the state because the forests are just producing at a rate that um, is not manageable. And there was concern with people about clear cutting and uh, forestry officials said in some cases that's best forest management is to do some clear cutting. And there's a lot of varieties of things to do, but I, I would rather see us utilize uh, the resources of Michigan within Michigan instead of exporting that product out of state uh, for others to use. I didn't throughout the course of that process feel that necessarily, certainly there were people that were against burning trees, period. But I, I didn't get the sense that there was such a pushback about biomass as it was citing something in the city of Traverse City. Um, you know, we are a resort community. And um, I, uh, anywhere close to the city, um, I just don't think that the community would support large, large local generation. I think they would support small distributed generation, not biomass, but um, you know, we would we would probably you know absolutely look at opportunities to uh, perhaps do power purchase agreements in renewable biomass plants, just not in the local area. Plus, you have the competition from the Cadillac plant too. If you build something in the Traverse City area, and just take a map and draw a circle on that map, and there's a lot of the circle around Traverse City where you're not going to get woody biomass from. You know, we got water, we got Leelanau County, Benzie County, not a lot of forest. There are a lot of trees, but not a lot of forests you can harvest in, in those counties. So it's, it goes back to Steve's point of it's got to be sited where you have a good source of fuel within a close range because you're, you're defeating your purpose if you're trucking it 100, 200 miles. You know, you know trucking it and storing it. And, yeah. you know, it does have an odor. Yeah, it's, you can't get away from yeah. that. Yeah, but. There's Cadillac's got biomass, Grayling has biomass, so you have facilities within 45 minutes yeah. of Traverse City that already are producing biomass energy. And that's all wood for... Wood uh, pellets. Wood pellets. Wood scraps. Wood scrap, different, different forms of it. But um, so, so when you look at the arguments uh, for renewable energy in, in I think everybody agrees that having a, a broad portfolio of energy uh, production and, and flexibility, and we're going to need all of the above. From a, a cost perspective, uh, as an individual homeowner, for me to say, you need to do whatever it takes, and I'm willing to pay another two cents a kilowatt hour or another penny a kilowatt hour, um, that, that won't have a big impact on my energy bill at the end of the year. But if I'm a, a manufacturer and you put another penny a kilowatt hour on me, that could be twenty thousand, forty thousand, or more dollars a year. So, so uh, Tim, in your case, right. 
80% of your customers are residential, I mean, in round numbers, right. but 80% of your power usage is from commercial and industrial. Right. So, so how do you balance that from a cost perspective and, and still um, meet the requirements you're expected to meet and do the things that, that you believe are the right things in terms of a mix for utility? It's, uh, it is a challenge. Um, I, I think, and this is just you know, my core belief, is that um, you know, renewable energy is very important to a lot of people in the community. But the economy of the local community, I believe, is more important. And I do see utility rates are uh, a vital driver in economic um, sustainable economic uh, prosperity, I think. Um, we just implemented uh, very small, uh, have not had a rate increase since 2006 until this past month, th this month actually, yesterday it started. Uh, and it was 1.5% uh, overall rate increase, which is a pretty good track record um, over the last eight years. But even with that, there, there was considerable pushback from some of the uh, commercial customers because, as you said, even a 1.5% rate increase for some of the large, um, you know, can be twenty to $40,000 a year. And um, so we look at it and try to balance it. Um, and our, we're going through, we just went through a cost of service study. This fall we're going to be doing a rate study. And um, we're also looking for future power purchase contracts to replace one that's expiring. And um, our board is going to be very sensitive to the economic impact of rate increases and in, in how they um, approve power purchase contracts. So I, I would echo a lot of that. And cost is a big driver in our health of our economy, cost of electricity. And while you know, we totally subscribe to the need to increase renewable energy. It cannot be, again, it cannot be at any cost. It has to be reasonable, economic, and it has to be blended into a flexible policy that allows us to levelize rates going forward. DTE Energy has a plan um, that we're implementing now that will uh, increase our renewable portfolio uh, standard um, or renewable energy in our portfolio and keep rates the same as they have been for DTE customers out through 2018. Um, we've got more uh, ideas on the shelf ready to go to implement an increased renewable um, percentage, uh, but again, we need the flexibility in policy. And getting back to Tony's point, Sometimes it's hard with term-limited legislators, mm -hmm. uh, our term-limited legislature. Uh, it, this is very complex policy. Uh, the, the nuances in energy policy trickle into low-income households. It trickles into industrial rates. It trickles into all facets of our economy. And as you educate these legislators, by the way, it's lobbyists who educate these legislators on the nuances of policy and um, Lobby, lobbyists from each side of the issue that lobbyists Not from all sides energy right lobbyists. right environmental stewards who are lobbyists educate uh, energy lobbyists educate and they know, all have big money behind them 
There, yeah, there's for one, the most part. Yes, um, and and that's part of our system, but um, it is it is the only way to get expertise is going to subject matter experts, and energy companies are subject matter experts on delivering energy safe and reliably. So, uh, as we have term limited legislators, we you know dive in, give them all the information, let them make up their mind, go through hearings, testimony, uh, you know, come up with reasonable energy policy like we did in 2008, um, required a, you know, a Herculean effort of educating the legislature on what can be done and what can't be done. And now suddenly, uh, as Doug mentioned earlier, in 2015, you know, we'll probably revisit this statewide energy policy and look at renewable for portfolio standards, and virtually none of the legislators that voted in 2008 will be in the legislature. So the benefit of all that knowledge is it's gone. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very difficult for our state to have a stable, long-term, effective uh, energy policy with term-limited legislature. Well, let's, let's save the term-limit uh, discussion <laughs> for another. another. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's a great conversation. But I wanted to touch on the, the comment that the survey says people are willing to pay more for, for uh, cleaner energy. And I, I want somebody to prove that to me in reality because I, I don't believe that. They will pay for a time. We've seen green rates of the past where you pay an extra $10 a month and then you have a green chunk of power. People get tired of paying that 10 bucks, And when you talk about, uh, well, they'll pay a penny more, you got to think about the fact that a penny more on my residential rate, that's almost a 10% increase. I can't, I can't charge a penny more because that's 10% that's is a big increase. He's talking about a, a percent and a half. I'm trying to keep up with him. I can't go a penny more. Uh, and then you look at our community solar project we did with Light and Power. Uh, we worked hard to capture tax credits and to drive that price down to, we got it down to 400 bucks, $395 per panel leased. And the biggest complaint I've gotten out of that project is 395 is still too much. And so I, I'm a little frustrated with the fact that 395 is too much and the fact that people say people will pay more. I couldn't find a, a cheaper community solar project in the country than mine and still it's not cheap enough. So. I'm not convinced people are going to pay a whole lot more. There, there's a segment of our society that is willing and able to pay more, but the, the average homeowner, they want to go to work, they want their rates stable, and uh, that's a tough task. Well, we hear about things like feed-in tariffs and other ways to distribute the yeah. cost ac across entire systems. What What and is that? that what What is a feed-in tariff? <laughs> a a feed-in tariff is essentially subsidizing solar energy. Let's make let's go wide scale solar energy and have you, and have the utility pay you know ten twelve cents a kilowatt hour, which is forty fifty percent more than what I can buy my whole entire portfolio for. That's just unrealistic subsidization, and I've I got a great paper on a stick in the eye that. <laughs> That's what yeah. I think of feed-in tariffs. And it becomes a social program. Yeah, it really and does. they Everybody should stand on their own. If you don't want coal energy, give me a form of energy that competes with that, that's cleaner, and, and we'll talk. You know, I shouldn't I, have, I everybody totally shouldn't have to subsidize um, the, the, uh, my My first premise is if someone in the Grand Traverse region who is a customer of Traverse City Light and Power 
and or um, Cherryland Electric, if they come to me and advocate solar, my first question to them is, are you participating in the community solar program? If they're not participating in that, I refuse to listen to what they have to say about solar. Because if you want solar and you're in one of those utilities areas, you're free to have it. And you should take advantage of it if you believe in the merits of solar, which there are good merits to it. The problem is, as Tony's alluding to, it's expensive. It's more, it costs more per kilowatt hour than anything else. And um, the only way it becomes affordable is if you uh, subsidize the rates of it through feed-in tariffs or otherwise. So, you know, the beauty about solar versus wind is if you are a, a renewable energy advocate and you want 100% renewable energy, you can put up solar panels or buy into programs like this. You're free to do that. And I think the frustrating point to advocates that more people aren't doing this is because it's not economical. In fact, MLUI doesn't even participate, to my knowledge, in the solar program. I mean, so you can advocate on one point, but in the, where it comes to the hard facts of balancing your checkbook on the kitchen table, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, writing um, the check is the survey for me. Those people who have write, written the check have responded to the survey that says, I will pay more for clean energy. Which is awesome. That is an awesome thing, and, and I'm, I'm glad our market and it allows that, and I'm glad the, um, these two utilities were able to make that happen. And we are. We did finally, it took a year, but we did finally sell out with yeah. the 220 panels, yeah. and um, that was the test. And now we've been approached, and um, MLUI actually is being more the convener um, to uh, do a better marketing uh, campaign to promote because we realize going into the second phase of the community solar, um, at least from my board's perspective, I believe is going to there's going to have to be the support of the project um, commitments uh, to a degree before the project will go forward. So, well, yeah, and just for the record, uh, the the chamber did buy two two panels, uh, and and you. and we believe that there's uh, there is promise in programs like the Pace program and Grand Traverse County commissioners have have agreed that there's promise in the Pace program and. Could one of you try to explain what the PACE, how the PACE program works? Well, the PACE program is similar to um, basically setting aside your own money that you pay into your taxes. And it really, um, you pay down over like 30 years um, the investment that you make in a wind or solar uh, project on your, on your facility. And so as you invest, say you want to put solar on your building, uh, a lot of these roofs have a lot of capacity to put solar up there. You put solar on your building, it's going to cost you X amount of dollars. I want to spread it out over 30 years. You work with the county and you basically play or place that in a payment structure that helps you pay that similar to when you pay your taxes. And it's actually collected when you pay your taxes over that time frame. So the county just collects the money and it's additional money from whoever has installed this. It's, it's not out of the existing tax base. It's no. not a well, tax. Well, it's basically a loan. It's a loan. It's, it's a loan. basically it, a loan. Are they that, charging interest? Are they talking about it's, any kind of a... It's a loan from the, the installer, right? Not from the county. Correct. The, right. all, the, all the public right. body does is collect the tax. Correct. 
and collects your payment and then distributes that and back. turns it over to them. Whoever installed this, and, and it, then it stays with the property. So it's so it's it's a, a so neat way to do property, this. So if you sell the property, it's part of the deed restrictions or deed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lien. Correct. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yes. And so we're seeing you know more of those uh, happening in Michigan, and we're we're seeing uh, uh, solar really beginning to take hold uh, as as a form of energy uh, in Michigan. Certainly not a, a base load. It's a more kind of a more of a it's I don't want to say a feel good approach to things, but for that individual company that that is a major user of energy. It, uh, it appears to have a, a beneficial effect for them on their power. How does it affect the the grid? You know, the grid is kind of this black box. Everything goes into it, and is it? And it's like a big. It's kind of perceived as a big battery. You can put as much in it as you want, and then when you need energy, you pull it out of the grid, and it, it's there for you. I'll start, and then I'll defer to the, the experts. But I think of the grid more as a bathtub that's brimming full of water at all times with inputs from all over. There's thousands of hoses filling this bathtub, and it's got to be full. And when the wind is going, the, the bathtub's at the brim. When the wind stops, the water goes down, and we have to turn something else on to keep that bathtub up. That's my simplistic version of how I see the grid working. And there's certainly a lot of difficulties. Well, you shouldn't have in electricity around the bathtub. Well, that's true. I'm, I'm just I'm trying to give the, for anybody watching. Trying, trying to give the people a visual that, that that's the balancing act. So you got to think of when the sun goes down and when the wind stops, that bathtub is going down. And what turns on then? And then I'll turn to the big generators and to finish that story. Well, what turns on is peaking facilities. So you have different types of peaking facilities around the state. Um, we have a very large peaking facility down in Ludington, um, the pump storage facility, uh, which uses water that we utilize in the evening. We pump water into the pond, and then during the day, when that bathtub, as Tony described it, starts you know not having as not, um, as much water as it needs or energy as it needs, um, we release the water. Uh, down through six turbines and, and f put more energy into the grid to do it. Now, uh, it is somewhat a green form of energy, but we use baseload fossil fuels to pump in the evening to fill up the pump storage. So it is kind of a mixed use energy provider. It uses low cost energy in the middle of the night to fill itself, and then during the day when the demand is there, it releases. And so you have these different types of peaking facilities around the state um, and the Midwest even to help uh, fill fill the tub back up and make sure that the grid is full. Yeah, most of which are natural gas. You know, a natural gas turbine, you can flip a switch. Essentially, it's not that simple, but it's a lot easier to turn on a natural gas turbine than it is a coal plant. So when we talk about the Darling natural gas has to be in place to go with the renewable component and if we can't get the delivery then we're headed for some problems you know so dte um we just uh opened our largest solar energy project so far uh, this spring it's right off of i-96 east of milford road down south if you know where that is it's in lyon township three thousand solar panels um and when this thing is up and running, 
and the sun is shining, it can provide about 818 kilowatts of electricity. What's that mean? That can power about 150 homes. So it's a good thing, but those homes want electricity at night too. So as Tony said, we have to be prepared with other dollars <clears throat> invested in other forms of generation to make sure that we can provide energy to those homes as well. You have to now, have a diverse portfolio. Now, this 818 kilowatts is a giant rounding portion of DTE Energy's ability to generate power. So it's not, you know, uh, it's not a tat for tat type of replacement. You know, it's blended in. But this, uh, you know, illustrates the example that yes, we can power 150 homes with it, and it's wonderful. But those homes obviously want power at night too. How much land does that take? Um, you know, that is interesting. We did sign a 20-year contract with uh, Milford Tree Farm, and um, I'm not sure I know the exact specifics, but... Uh, several acres. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's several acres, and we did run into a number of roadblocks with the township board about installing this. Uh, landowners nearby that facility uh, are not terribly happy with it. I mean, it's... It's again that not in my backyard type of thing. Yeah. So, what's the capacity factor you're seeing at your wind farms? We're seeing about you know 35 to 45 percent. That means they're only on 40 percent of the time. Well, I don't know what our, you guys are seeing goal, with yours. Our goal at um, Lake uh, Lake Winds Project in Lettington was to be at 30 percent, and we're there. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll probably see that increase over time. Same without in uh, the, the Crosswinds project is we're probably going to be in that 30 to 35 percent range as well. So that's right, 30 percent of the time it's producing yeah, the, 100, so, the 100 megawatts that we need. So you know, a couple of things there. We we actually have some capacity factors, annual average annual average capacity factors in our thumb project that are higher than those numbers. It's a good thing. It's a result of much taller turbines, uh, the latest and greatest expensive technology. But what we're trying to do at DTE Energy is really look at capacity factor on a monthly basis. So instead of referring to our projects as a capacity factor of annual average, we're saying, what's the capacity factor for July? And those capacity factors are much less. And even more, we're saying, what is the capacity factor on our peak day when we really need every power source available because everybody's turning on whatever they have to turn on? Which is and typically in July. Yeah, and, and that number is even less. So we have to be careful about looking at annual average capacity factors, in particular as the amount of renewable energy increases in the overall portfolio. That becomes a, a bigger and bigger cog in the larger wheel of physics. So why are you doing it? Uh, you know, why are you increasing the amount of, of renewable energy in your portfolios? One, we have a state mandate. The state mandate, and, then, and what, uh, what is the mandate? It's 10% by 2015. Uh, and we're gonna exceed that mandate because we've found some affordable power to do that. 
but we're also in the process of we have some natural gas and we're building natural gas so we're we're doing renewable to, to meet the mandate and to combat what's coming down from the feds we got a whole another two hours we could go on the epa regs but we have to prepare for that too as at the same time we try to battle it so we're we're doing it to prepare for the future one it's absolutely the right thing to do it, it is cleaner you can there's all kinds of arguments around global warming climate change is it happening is it not happening don't care um, the fact is it, it's cleaner and it's the right thing to do and we can do it affordably so we're doing it but we do have the mandates and we do have look into the future we have to prepare for that future and we're trying to do that while we maintain affordability over and over again it's affordability at our place totally agree with that uh, dte energy believes we can increase the amount and we plan to increase the percentage uh, and we'll be supportive of an increased amount you know if it comes legislatively as long as it's a balanced proposal that allows flexibility and off-ramp so it's not at any cost however um, you know, one of the points I think we we need to uh, capture is that we as a state, as a society, in fact, our forefathers invested in coal technology. They put all the eggs, so to speak, in coal. We're still, we've still got mortgage payments on that investment. And part of responsible energy policy is to say, you know, we do want to transition away from coal, but we can't just shut them off. So, you know, we're starting to see uh, coal plants being phased out. Consumers Energy has a plan to phase out some. DTE Energy is phasing out and closing plants. But we still have, in DTE's uh, portfolio, we still have two of the largest coal-fired power plants east of the Mississippi. We've invested over $1.8 billion just in the last uh, six years in emissions controls in advance of the EPA guidelines. Uh, we in plan to invest more. We cannot, nor will we walk away from that investment. We will always have coal as in our portfolio. And we need to recognize as a state, as we transition, we still have mortgage payments and an obligation to mitigate the investments we've put into and, coal and to go Absolutely. with that you know we whether it's global warming or you know air pollution um, being caused by coal power plants we didn't get here overnight and we're Good not going to we're not going to yeah. solve this problem overnight either um so there are there are some that just think every coal plant should be shut down and and i think you know realistically they they understand that that's just not possible so it is uh maybe national maybe world um, opinions and attitudes have to change about how we go forward um, i don't think that traverse city light and power uh, being a leader in renewable energy um, while it's a great great goal and a, a great initiative and fully support renewable energy this small town um, on the backs of its ratepayers cannot save the whole world um, but there are thousands of municipal owned utilities in the united states that collectively can have a substantial impact right. on. I think that clearly you can make a statement, as I believe, you know, building the first utility grade wind turbine um, in the nation was a gateway to, uh, in, in some respects, to wind energy as a resource for electric generation. Also, the first uh, Michigan Community Solar Project is another example that's received both state and national acclaim. Um, 
kind of, I like Tony's attitude going into that, got a little tired of talking about it and just said, just do it. Yeah. And, and just did it. Um, this isn't difficult. So, and it didn't, <clears throat> didn't negatively, it didn't impact customer rates at all. So there are things that can be done. I believe our utility, it's a balance, uh, is required by state law. Uh, to do certain things, which of course uh, we're going to follow the law, but it's also with a desire from a certain segment of our customer base to go beyond in a responsible, fiscally responsible manner. Well, you know, uh, Doug, uh, not too long ago, you and I stood shoulder to shoulder uh, fighting against a number of different proposals that were uh, on the ballot for Michigan, and one of them was Proposal 3, 25 by 25 that would have mandated in the state's constitution mm -hmm. that we get a 25% renewable portfolio by the year 2025. We, uh, we all were opposed to that. And in our arguments against it, we said, you know, that may be a good goal. That could be the right goal, but it should be, it should be something that we do based on economics and that it should be legislated and not, not mandated. The constitution shouldn't be manipulated that way. And we, we really made a, a, a statement of, of, that we would make a good faith effort to get to that 25 goal at some point. Now that you're uh, with consumers, how do you feel like we're doing in terms of meeting our, our rhetoric? Well, we know that we're going to be above our 10% 2015 goal. Uh, we know that there have already started hearings and we're very in tune to those hearings that are going on in Lansing as to where that next goal is going to be set. And I think what you said is right out of the bat, it has to make economic sense for the consumers of Michigan and our customers so that while we do the right things, we also make sure we're doing the right things at, at a fair and balanced cost. And it's all balance. You know, we're retiring seven coal plants in the next, by 2016. Um, with that, we're purchasing a natural gas plant in Jackson. Um, we are investing uh, a, a billion dollars in uh, clean technology to upgrade our other coal facilities. And we had, uh, be even before the EPA regs were discussed, we had a goal to reduce our uh, carbon emissions by 20% by 2025 already. So those, and part of that is retiring the, old, the older seven coal plants. So we were, we're on that path to uh, have a balanced, cleaner um, portfolio to generate power in Michigan. And some of that's natural gas. We have an option to build another natural gas plant down the road if we see a need for it. Um, and so those pieces are already in play, and they were in play before Proposal 3 and, and really trying to put things in a state constitution that don't belong there because things change overnight and things change over decades to create, as you know, Tim said earlier, it took years to get where we are today. It's going to take years to get to the next technologies and the next set of uh, production assets to really produce that power for Michigan customers. For me, it's as simple as just let the market do it. You know, Steve indicated he, they're willing to go above the 10%. Uh, 
I'm really not. I think you give me a wind price that's five, six cents, I'll buy it. You give me solar that's five, six, seven cents even, I'll buy it. Don't give me a mandate that says I have to. As soon as you give me a mandate that says I have to buy it, the price goes up. And I just believe the market should dictate the price. And we can do cleaner and affordable together. When you throw the mandate in, you're throwing affordability out a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, DTE is willing to go above that, and it's because it's in the market. It's in the money right and, now. And that's one of the reasons. But you bring up a good point. When yeah. when you do mandate it, especially through an uh, instrument like the Constitution, if you want to talk about instant price increases, uh, suddenly the market you know, goes out of the money. So we have to be very careful in the way this is implemented. You know, perhaps have goals that allow exit ramps if, you know, costs go above a certain amount or, you know, things go awry or let's say suddenly turbine blades aren't available and, you know, any number of things uh, so that we can ensure against that uh, consequence that Tony's talking about. Yeah. Um, Our portfolio will be close to 18% renewable in 2016. Uh, five years ago, we were 67% coal. We're going to be 47% coal in 2016, 18% renewable. Our natural gas is going to go up to the 20% range. Our nuclear component is going to go up to the 20% range. And we're going to do that with a minimal increase of rates. In fact, I think our power supply costs are going to go down next year. Okay. So we, we keep talking about wind and solar. Right. Uh, but last August, the president signed the Hydropower Regulat Regulatory Efficiency Act, HREA. It passed the House and the Senate without any dissenting votes. It encourages development of a, an array of hydro product, projects that hold great potential, and particularly new small hydro, new small hydro projects. So non-power dams, pump storage, increased efficiency. Why haven't we heard of this? And why is this not part of the discussion that's going on in our communities? Michigan is, you're never more than three miles from a lake, river, or stream in Michigan. In my opinion, it's the, it's the environmental movement. The, the desire to keep our rivers and streams the way they were two, three, four hundred years ago. Uh, hydro, in, the in my utility world, hydro seems to be becoming the hands-off renewable resource. We, we just have the attitude we can't build anymore. Yet it's the cleanest. It, it produces 24-7. It takes all the intermittency problems we have with wind and solar out of the occasion. But people just get up in arms when you're threatening fish and threatening changing rivers. And I, I think at some point we have to choose. If you want cleaner air, you're going to have to give up some fish and you're going to have to fish somewhere else maybe. And uh, I but think con Congress doesn't agree on anything and no dissenting votes. I mean, this sound was it really that bipartisan? Did, did people know they were voting on it? Was it stuck in the well, back of something? I can't account for their voting, but I can tell you we own multiple hydro facilities across the state. Um, our largest uh, on the Muskegon River, the Hart the Hardy Dam, is a 30 megawatt uh, facility. It's got a hundred foot drop from the headwaters to the base of the dam. That is not a large drop when you look at where large hydro operations are. When you look at the west, yeah. or you look at the Niagara Basin, or you look in northern Canada where they have 
you know, their drop is a quarter mile drop or a half mile drop. Um, you know, that that is an enormous amount of volume that goes through. We're we're running at flow, flow of the river, and it's a 30 megawatt facility. Which 30 megawatts would be what about 10 percent of a normal coal power power plant output? No, 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 no. 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 Coal plants run the run the gamut. Yeah. I'm trying to think of an example. And I'm not saying I'm not trying to compare a, a dam to an entire coal power plant, but I'm trying to get some perspective on what 30 megawatts is. Is is 30 megawatts enough to power? Uh, that would be enough. Um, not pretty close to enough to power um, this community, Traverse City Light and Power in the winter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Our yeah. our gas uh, facility is like 540 megawatts. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, another issue on the on the hydro question is the fact that the regulatory environment. I previously managed a co-op in Wisconsin. We had a five megawatt hydro produced about ten percent of our needs. Just a little plant on the river. It was there fifty years. It took us eight years to relicense that facility that was well maintained and operating because people simply wanted it torn out just to take the river back to where it was. And so I think part of the deal is the utilities don't have the stamina to go through an 8, 10, 12-year process to license a new project in Michigan, when you can throw down a gas plant and be done in a year. Michigan uh, promotes its lakes, rivers, and streams. And that's the jewel, um, the Great Lakes included. And that's the attraction. That is pure Michigan. And you try to mess with pure Michigan, and there's going to be there's going to be some, you know. I, I think that hydro is great. Most of those places you're talking about, the rivers are very small. Even the Muskegon is small in comparative to major hydro operations. I think it'd be great to invest in hydro, but where it makes most economic sense is out west. So to import it, yeah. Right. And I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily that important. I mean, as long as you have um, enough power locally to power the state, but. I don't think it's necessary to fund something within your community. Um, I think it's I think it's more important to find the best deal, and the fact if it's renewable, just funding it. It doesn't matter where it's at. You're still supporting renewable energy as a as a nation. Well, and we at one time owned property in Arcadia, um, where the Arcadia Bluffs are. Um, we were looking to build a second pump storage at one time. And with you know the protection, the Dune Protection Acts, and the other environmental atmosphere in Michigan, it would be impossible for that facility to be built today. What what's a pump storage facility? Pump storage facility is like what's in Ludington, where we pump water at night and fill a big pond or lake, and then during the day when the demand is there, we release it back into Lake Michigan. So we're just basically using Lake Michigan as a battery. Um, fill, fill up at night, store all that power to when it's needed, and then release it when it's needed. And mm -hmm. so it becomes, uh, you know, it, it becomes a, a peaker. Um, so when Michigan or the Midwest needs additional power into the grid, they call Ludington and tell us to turn Three turbines on, turn six turbines on. Do you know what the, what the cost per kW on that is? I don't know off the is top it of my head. Changes probably. It, it does change. Um, we are right now with uh, our partner DTE there 
investing both of us close to a billion dollars in upgrading those turbines. It'll be 20% more efficient um, by uh, when the project is complete. So you're looking at even 20% more power coming out of those. <laughs> yeah, so you know, the interesting thing, the Ludington pump storage, you know, that was built by our forefathers. Uh, it was considered one of the biggest um, civil engineering and construction projects in Michigan at the time. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars went into this, and it was the forefront of engineering. It's now, in our day, now considered a darling, you know, while the forethought of this battery storage facility, you know, pumping water uphill to, uh, in a safe, environmentally uh, reasonable manner, and then, you know, letting it flow down and, and, and generate electricity on demand, it's just wonderful. But at the time, uh, we were mired in lawsuits that cost untold millions of dollars. Um, th that, in fact, that is the genesis of the Great Lakes Fisheries Trust is a result of a settlement, lawsuit settlement over the Ludington pump storage. So I only bring that up as a, as a point that, you know, we as a state uh, need to get behind a plan and then all sign on and say, okay, let's go. It's not perfect, but it's, it, we need to go. Quick point about Monroe Power Plant. You asked about 30 megawatts, what would that power? Monroe Power Plant in Michigan, which is in Monroe County, owned by DT Energy, um, we have a, it generates about 3,400 megawatts at any given time. It takes 100 megawatts to power just the plant. So when you talk about a 30 <laughs> megawatt uh, dam, it's, it's such a rounding error in, in meeting Michigan's appetite for energy and I don't and I think it's easy for us here in this tourist community to to think about the shop downtown that needs electricity or the hospital is that but there are mighty large manufacturing plants and facilities all through Michigan that require significant copious amounts of electricity to do what it is we do to make our economy hum and we cannot ever underestimate that and we can never saddle them with unfair costs we have to be competitive we've got to be market uh, driven and uh, we have to be very reliable so so no brownouts no blackouts um, well, let me build on that because uh, uh, given our time, uh, I'm going to ask uh, just two more questions. Uh, one is uh, you know, we have not talked at all today about conservation. Right. And, you know, when we did our energy uh, task force, conservation was the number one priority for us. We saw it as having the greatest potential. The Northern Michigan Chamber Alliance uh, did an uh, energy policy statement uh, maybe two years ago and, and said the same thing it, that if we had a dollar to spend we'd like to see it spend on conservation we thought there's the greatest potential for uh, impact in on conservation let me ask you as utility providers uh, if, if for your next dollar for impact where would you spend that and where, where would conservation of energy and, and its potential as an energy source uh, fit in that mix well, I can tell you, um, conservation is the top of our list. It's the cheapest megawatt produced, is the one that you don't have to produce at all. Um, the EO programs that were part EO uh, energy optimization programs that were part of the 2008 energy legislation, 
um, have proven to save our customers uh, a significant amount of, uh, of energy. In fact, um, I think the studies tell us that, um, you know, we were able to save this, uh, an equivalent amount, the city of Lansing, one year of energy consumption. That's how much energy our optimization program saved our customers, a typical size of Lansing. That said, it's an expense, it can be an expensive program and it can get out of hand very quickly. Uh, we have the benefit of economies of scale in the two larger utilities and can manage those costs. As you start to shrink down the size of the people or the program, i.e. Cherryland Electric, Travis Lighting Power, those things become very much more expensive on a per unit basis. So the, I want to underscore conservation is the best and tip top, and I think everybody would agree here, but we have to do it in a manner that does not require heavy subsidization by others. It's, it's one of our number ones as well, and we put a lot of effort and a lot of resources into energy efficiency because, as Steve pointed out, the, the wasted energy, if there's lost energy in the, in the system that could be saved, um, that is a savings to not only that individual customer but all of our customers. And so it's important that we look at where those opportunities are I also agree with Steve, um, as a larger utility, we have um, you know, a larger base to, to really look at and really focus those energies and those dollars on to make that work for our customers across the state. And for us, um, we've always had what we call an energy use advisor. Our members for the last 30 years have been able to call up the office and say, my bill's too high, how can I save energy? We send that person out free of charge and uh, to go through their homes and do what we have to do to try to reduce their energy usage if they want us to. We've always done that. The, the 2008 bill is very frustrating to me because it now then put a mandate on and said I have to do it and I have to track it and I have to keep numbers. And it's been difficult for us to do that. And, and be affordable at the same time. You know, We look at our rebates under the state mandate as if I'm going to save a thousand kilowatt hours with this measure, my rebate better be eight cents or less because that's what my power is costing me from my power supplier is eight cents. And so when you do that, we're pushing a lot of rebates onto manufacturers who certainly are taking advantage of them and using them, but we're hitting our state mandated goal mostly on the commercial side. We're, we're missing the, the low-income people. We're missing the residential people because the bang for the buck isn't there because I've now got to meet a mandate, and i got to meet it as affordably as possible. So I'm going over to my commercial customers and saving them a ton, which is good and don't mind doing that, but we have always could do that. But I, I think when we talk conservation, we, 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 we miss the residential customer. And we also forget the fact that the average residential home on my cooperative system uses 700 kilowatt hours. Nationally, I, there's 900 co-ops in 47 states. And nationally, that residential number is 1,200 kilowatt hours. Because of our climate in Michigan, I've chopped 500 kilowatt hours off the national average because our winters aren't that cold, toss this last one aside, and our summers are very nice. So. I'm now having to shave that residential house, that 700 kilowatt hours is a lot tougher to shave down than the 1200 is nationally. So it, 
the mandate is tough. Again, I wish they'd just let us do what we've done and let the market dictate. But conservation is, is important, and it's always been important. Tim, you've yeah. had TC saves, and you're part of the uh, Energy Efficiency Loan Fund with the uh, Chamber Foundation. Right. So what's your perspective? Yeah, I and I will agree with Tony. I mean, energy, I mean, energy conservation before, way before... Uh, there was any thought of uh, putting it into a state law is something that Traverse City Light and Power has been committed to. Um, it did require some programs that Light and Power had not done in the past and and spent money in ways that uh, through promotions and such that don't really, in the end, in my opinion, save it, save save uh, energy. Um, but it's required by law that we do certain things. So, um, but we have partnered with the Chamber of Commerce. I think that's a very effective program. It's an outstanding uh, program. Yeah. yeah, hats off. That's a great. And program. and I, um, our board fully supported the idea of. I mean, the idea was to uh, reduce, conserve energy. Uh, where are you going to do that? You're going to do that with those large commercial customers that we have here in Traverse City, and 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 with that loan program. Um, you know they're going to they were going to spend that money for those upgrades anyway. Uh, there's no subsidy from the other utility customers for that. They're repaying that loan so that it can be loaned out again. Yeah. And I do like that kind of a program. Uh, the company is going to benefit by having reduced power bills. The utility as a whole is going to benefit and be able to keep rates lower um, by shaving peak. Uh, we've given away all the light bulbs we can give. <laughs> uh, that is not that is not making an impact anymore. We've been required to. We don't need to shave our consumption at night. We peak during the day. Um, and, and so our board has been more focused on uh, creating uh, a new EO program that has a variety of programs like the Chamber is managing and that focuses on some of what we call our key commercial customers to uh, encourage them to do some energy conservation that will manage our peak. So, so hypothetically, let's say that you were all asked to pool a billion dollars together uh, and, and have, the, have the biggest impact uh, in, in terms of uh, reducing our, our dependence on coal. Um, and you could, could, if you could spend that on renewable energy uh, production in Michigan, wind farm, solar, hydro all together, or importing it from other states, or put or investing it in uh, energy efficiency and conservation within the state of Michigan, where would you want to, where would you want to focus your billion dollars? Well, I think um, we need to amp that up by 10. So a billion is not going to do anything for us in mm -hmm. the state. It's like a $1 billion. I'll take $1 billion. I can do something with that. But because um, we're already investing a billion uh, in renewable, a billion eight in energy emissions uh, or emission technology. But I think from my perspective, uh, I think we build another nuclear plant in the state and then we balance out with additional renewable. Uh, that's really the answer let's uh you know let's keep monroe and some of the larger plants that we have such significant amount of investments in and technology let's keep those going for the foreseeable future let's invest in nuclear and uh, renewable energy maybe sprinkle in some natural gas that'd be my preference 
Yeah, I, I'm going to go with small-scale nuclear. There's a lot of testing being done on 200 megawatt units, smaller units. Uh, it's kind of getting stuck in some regulatory processes. But if you want to be clean and you want 24-7, you got to go nuclear. And then if I had any left over, I'd try to get some hydro out of Canada. You know, I, I just think hydro's 24-7 and clean. Do you think there would be any support for nuclear on Power Island? It is, it is Power Island. It's called Power Island. If you moved Power Island, yeah. yeah if I moved it, but yeah, I um, well, I'm going to be a little different. Not talk most more about the generation, but I don't think I would need a billion dollars. But I think um, conservation is the future, um, and and I and I think it has to go a little bit farther than changing light bulbs and and, and some different machinery. I think we need to. You know, as a community, get into the building codes. Um, groups like MLUI need to focus their efforts on working with counties, cities, townships, and building codes so that so that we're building more efficient homes going forward. Um, a lot of the most inefficient homes in Traverse City are rentals, and the people cannot afford to make energy improvements into their homes. And the landlords um, are in this as a business to make money. They're not investing in those homes as well. I think we really need to uh, uh, start over to go f forward in, in making you know, all buildings when we build them as energy efficient as possible. Our energy plan calls for a balanced portfolio. So I think uh, everything we heard here today really falls in that balanced portfolio. We need a little bit and a lot of everything moving forward, we, conservation, new generation, renewable generation, green generation, you know, where can we, where can we uh, import uh, different sources of energy? So it really looks at a balanced portfolio for the state that dabbles in everything because that is what's going to take us to the next level is that balanced approach. You can't just put it all into one thing. Well, and that's a good... A, a good segue to the closing question. Uh, you know, Michigan has been through a long recession that it is it is emerging from it, fairly quickly, quick, faster than people thought. The United States is in a similar position. It is poised for economic growth. It, it, it in my opinion, kind of hampers itself along the way uh, towards that. Uh, the world economy has been. Uh, in a malaise uh, caused in large part by the United States uh, recession. It is poised for comeback. Is there enough energy available to power a, a rapid economic uh, uh, turnaround in Michigan and in the United States? That's a great question. I say no. And um, I would point to um, a documentary called Beyond the Light Switch, produced by Detroit Public uh, TV. Uh, refer people to watch that uh, as my source for that no and I you know you have to recognize how long it takes from the time I'm even talking about building a power plant to actually having it online and um, we have a very fragile um, we, we take it for granted just like the Sun coming up every day we don't see it you know, nine months out of the year, but, but um, you know, we well, for those of us who get up in the morning, yeah. we see it. <laughs> we do take it for granted, um, and and but we do have to recognize it is a fragile system. Um, we've seen some major outages across the country. It didn't impact Traverse City directly, but it's um, 
you know, it will happen again at some point somewhere. I mean, it's that's the nature of it. Yeah. For me, it's simple math. If you look at all the coal plants that we're talking about taking offline, decommissioning because they're old or for whatever reason, add that up and then put it next to the number of everything we're building in the country, it's not equal. So at some point, the, those numbers are going to clash and we're not going to have enough power. And what, what I feel we're going to see is some of those older plants staying on. And uh, we'll wait and see. But my answer is no. That there's no way because the math is too simple. There's too much being taken offline and not enough being built. You know, it's funny because I just returned from a meeting downstate at our corporate headquarters. And, uh, you know, we were they were talking about focusing on the next... 20 to 30 years but the you know that is the focus of our company is making sure that we are there and the challenges that we face and the investments that we have to make now to provide the power for our customers in Michigan and that's exactly what the experts um, are doing in our company and that's exactly I'm sure the experts are doing in every single company across the country is what are those investments that we're going to need to make. Um, we're investing in natural gas. We have an option to build another natural gas plant when the need arises. Um, you know, and, and there, there are strategies that are being looked at and how that's going to play out over the next 10 to 20 years. So can a community hedge its bet on that? Can a community specifically, can a, a community like uh, Grand Traverse region or northwest lower Michigan hedge its bets in terms of uh, uh, energy production, uh, whether it's distributed power or, or building a power plant and, and have that energy available if, if, the, if, the, if there's a, a I think crisis? The, I think the answer is, is we've, we've been around for over 125 years. The other partners in these rooms have been around for 100. 100. You know, and so and we've been providing power to our customers for that time period. And there are, you know, as challenges and there are opportunities through all of that. And so the history shows that we do respond to the needs of our customers. And the history shows that there are challenges and opportunities in those years that that we've been through and probably the years as we move forward. And I agree with that as well. And, and I don't want to cause alarm by my previous statement because what will happen is when some of these coal plants are proposed to come offline, we have the regional grid, the Midwest Independent System Operator. They're going to say this plant can shut off or this plant can't shut off. They recently did that in Marquette. When we Energy said we're going to shut this plant down, the MISO, the Midwest Independent System Operator, again, come in and said, no, you can't do that because the grid is going to be harmed. So there are mechanisms in place, but it's going to involve keeping some old stuff on. And that's what the people need to realize is whether we want to shut stuff off or not, for whatever reason, there's going to be cases in the future where we will not be able to do that because we're not building enough to replace the and old it's, stuff. And it's a very large reliability system, and I um, kind of to the heart of your question, I don't think a community like Traverse City, um, because of the fears that there's not going to be enough power, I don't believe it's the right decision to build local generation to protect yourself about what might happen in the future. Um, I, have, I have too much faith in, in the network 
um, the MISO footprint that, um, you know, whatever the powers that be recognize and will um, as far as closing power plants and um, I don't believe that they'll allow it to happen. If we continue on the same path that we're on and, and just mandate close this, close this, um, we would have a problem. But um, people need electricity in the, at the end of the day. And, um, you know, they're going to have it. Yeah, we need more people saying yes to nuclear, yes to gas, yes to coal. That there's too much activity that says, no, don't build anything. If you don't like the stuff you're using today, you got to say yes to something else. And it can't be just renewables and conservation, which are all good and all going up. But you got to have the big three in the future. I, I think I would, I would conclude by saying that um, there's been an, an, uh, an extreme amount of pressure focused on uh, generation emissions from a CO2 perspective. In actuality, generation only accounts for one-third of our CO2 emissions in the United States. The other third is transportation, and the other third is something Tim referred to earlier. It's our buildings. Our, our buildings and structures uh, emit a third of the CO2. Uh, but I would argue that 95% of the discussion focus has been on generation. Uh, so while we need to push forward and push the thoughts and logic of our forefathers and do the right thing for the future, we also need to concentrate on our, on our transportation infrastructure. We need to look at you know, switching fuels, especially fleets, to natural gas to reduce emissions. We need to continue down efficiency and mass transit, uh, but we also need to address building codes. We need to address, we need to incentivize landowners who are property owners and renter, uh, uh, landlords. Right. We, we have to look at the other two thirds of the problem. The, the cooperatives talk a lot about an all of the above strategy, and that's what an all of the above strategy is, and that's what Doug's talked about too. There's not one solution for the future. Uh, so we've heard all of the above <clears throat> and say yes to something. So, uh, <laughs> right. And so with that, uh, I'd like to thank you guys for taking your time uh, to provide this uh, insight into how you view uh, the energy situation right now in our region and in Michigan. And we'll look forward to our next opportunity to get together and talk about the next energy topic. <laughs>